Hello, and welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I am one of your hosts, John Hammontree, and this season I am joined by a co-host, R.L. Nave, Reckon's new editor-in-chief. R.L., welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me this season, John. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited about this season. You know, you're joining us for Mississippi Today, Mississippi and Alabama, two states that are very dear to my heart. And you have a lot of experience looking at elections all across the South. And that's what we're going to be doing this season. We're going to be looking at the 2020 Southern election landscape. But we're not necessarily going to be doing what you might hear from a typical politics show. We're not looking at the horse races. We're looking at kind of the movements that are going to linger long beyond November. There are people putting in the work right now that are going to change the South a decade from now, that are going to change the South five years from now. It's not about who wins so much as the coalitions that are built. Does that make sense? It does. And in some ways, the horse race doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we talk about the solid South. At one point, it was solidly Democratic, no matter what happened. We knew which way the states were going to go. I mean, now most Southern states are solidly conservative or red, depending on which kind of terminology you want to use. But that hasn't stopped movement building from happening in the South. It hasn't stopped grassroots organizing from happening in the South. And if you look at the history of, of the country, particularly modern history, and, you know, the civil rights movement, this is the birthplace of that movement. And think about all the movements that it has spawned. You know, there would be no Ferguson without the organizing that took place in the South. There would be no Black Lives Matter protests following the, the killing of George Floyd if it had not been for organizers and freedom fighters in the South. And I think that that's something that often gets lost in the conversation about, well, we know which way the South is going to go. Well, you know, maybe from a sort of statewide electoral perspective, but there's so much movement building. And I really feel like there's so much energy right now, particularly among young people to say, yeah, no, like we're not going to be, you know, follow a predictable path. We're actually writing a new history of the South and we are the authors of it. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting kind of on the other side of the aisle, that the modern Republican Party has kind of also been shaped by the South. You know, we think about the civil rights movement and a lot of these other rights movements that have been born out of Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. But the Republican Party and the turns that it's taken have taken a lot of their cues from the Eagle Forum and from the anti-feminist movement that kind of rose up in response to a lot of those movements. So we're going to be talking a little bit about what that Southern strategy has looked like for both parties and how that's kind of shaped the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And yeah, we will be looking at some states to see whether or not they're in play. You know, Georgia, is it really purple this year? Is Virginia solidly blue now? Is, are the Carolinas turning purple? Is Texas in play? You know, we're going to be looking at that less to see who wins the presidency and more to see what does that mean about the South and how it's changing demographically, how it's changing sociologically. So there's a lot that's going to be happening in this show. But it all, of course, starts with voting. Elections depend on voting. And not everybody has the right to vote even 50 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. And I mean, even some people who do have the right to vote don't have access to the ballot. Think about how difficult, for example, absentee voting is in most states in a normal election. year. And now we're dealing with the pandemic and conversations about expanding mail-in voting or not to expand mail-in voting. So we also want on this show to, you know, bring in community leaders and experts to really get into, so, you know, how do you overcome, whether you believe it's voter suppression or the pandemic just making it very difficult for people to exercise the right to vote? I mean, we really want to talk to people who can explain to our audience 
what they need to do to get engaged in this election, whether it's voting, whether it's getting linked up with an advocacy organization, whether it's organizing around a particular policy issue. Yeah. And so for today's episode, we spoke with Carol Anderson, who literally wrote the book on the 50 years that have followed since the passage of the VRA and how even from the beginning, states have been trying to push back and limit the right to vote that people like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, who we've been mourning in the last few weeks, put their lives on the line for. And then we also speak with ProPublica's Jessica Hoosman, who has been tracking voting issues with their election land project for several years. And she talks a little bit about how this pandemic has complicated everything, but there were a lot of problems that were there before. So let's get started with Professor Carol Anderson, who joined us from Emory University on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Professor Carol Anderson, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Uh, thank you so much for having me, John. You know, uh, in the last few weeks, we have been mourning the loss of Congressman John Lewis and Dr. C.T. Vivian, and there's been an urgent call recently to restore the Voter Rights Act. And I think for a lot of our listeners and a lot of people out there, we don't necessarily know what's happened to the Voter Rights Act that needs to be restored. Tell us what's happened in the intervening decades since the VRA first passed in 1965. So when the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, it immediately received a challenge from South Carolina. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where South Carolina was arguing that the Voting Rights Act undermined and undercut states' rights and that they should be able to hold their elections how they're used to holding their elections with literacy tests, although they refused to fund education for African-Americans, and that they didn't like federal electors there. The U.S. Supreme Court came back in that case and said, no, the Voting Rights Act is constitutional. Then there was another challenge from Mississippi and Virginia, where they were just doing minor tweaks, and they thought, hey, all we're doing are minor tweaks. And so clearly minor tweaks don't have to go under the Voting Rights Act where we have to have every change that we make to our voting laws okayed first by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the federal court in D.C. because that's the preclearance provision. Mm -hmm. And states didn't get under the preclearance provision in the Voting Rights Act simply because, oh, I don't know, they were states. They got under the preclearance provision because they had messed up. They had messed up, I almost want to say bigly, right? (laughs) (laughs) There, There were these benchmarks that states had to hit in order to come under the Voting Rights Act preclearance provision. They had to have fewer than 50% of their age-eligible adults register to vote. And they had to use one of the preclearance disfranchising devices that came out of the Mississippi Plan of 1890. So they had to use a poll tax or they had to use a literacy test. If a state combined with both of those, they came under preclearance. So that's why Mississippi and Virginia argued, hey, but our minor tweaks, they don't count. And the Supreme Court said, son, (laughs) let me tell you something, son. (laughs) You know, this is for the blatant as well as the subtle. Because what Mississippi wanted to do was to move elected officials over to being appointed officials. Things like the superintendent of schools. (laughs) Then you had reauthorization battles. But the Voting Rights Act worked. Let me just give you one example. Mississippi, in the early 1960s, prior to the Voting Rights Act, 
had about 5% of its African-Americans registered to vote. Now, you and I both know Mississippi got a lot of black folk. Yes. And when you only have 5% registered to vote, and in some counties it was 0%. You know, on some counties, like Amity County, you could count on one hand the number of African-Americans registered to vote. And before the Black Codes and Jim Crow laws and things like that were introduced during the redemption movement in the South, African-American registration rates were, were very high. Absolutely. What we're looking at during that period, we're looking at registration rates in the 80 to 90 percent range. So to think about where we were coming out of the Civil War, when we get the Reconstruction Act of 1867, and then we get the 15th Amendment that says the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So there we're getting African-American voter registration and turnout rates in the 80-90% range. So what it takes in order to significantly reduce that to zero was the Mississippi plan of 1890 with all of its disfranchising tools and violence, massive violence. So as I said, in early 1960, Mississippi, 5%. Two years after the Voting Rights Act, just two years after, almost 60% wow. of African-Americans were registered to vote in Mississippi. That's the power of that law really effective. And that's why it had its crosshairs on it. At its heart, what does the VRA do? What it, what it really does is it protects the right to vote of American citizens. It stops discrimination by state entities from coming up with different ways to stop African Americans and Latinos and Asian Americans and Native Americans from voting. It has language in there, like in its reauthorization in 1982, it had language in there about jurisdictions that have significant number of language minorities that the entity had to then create ballots that had that language on there. So it was a way of, of making sure that American democracy was American democracy, vibrant, full and that all American citizens had the right to vote. And that's what made it so dangerous for those who really, really disdain and are in contempt of African Americans voting, Hispanics voting, Asian Americans voting, Native Americans voting, doggone near everybody voting. I mean, even, they don't even, even poor white Americans. In, in they really countries. don't want poor white Americans voting. <laughs> I mean, it is just like, dang, y'all. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, and they say it out loud. Steve King, who was a congressman out of Iowa, he was lamenting. He was like, I remember back in the good old days when you used to have to own property to be able to vote. Right. I mean, if we go back that far, then you're talking about a time when, when women couldn't own property and thus couldn't vote. And yes. it w would have really only been wealthy white men. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it's stunning, isn't it, that we're hearing this kind of conversation in the 21st century? Well, and you mentioned that from the moment it passed, 
VRA has been under attack, and every few years it has to be reauthorized. Let's flash forward to Shelby v. Holder, unless there's another major challenge that I'm missing in, in those 50 years. But that was kind of a real changing of the guard in terms of removing the preclearance authorization under Section 5. Shelby County v. Holder, I believe, will go down in history as a decision that was as destructive as Plessy v. Ferguson. Wow. Now, I live in Alabama, mm-hmm. not not too far from Shelby County. Can you tell us what Shelby County v. Holder, what was that dispute there? Yes, absolutely. Because what you have is a conscious, deliberate defiance of federal law. So Shelby County, like all of Alabama, was under the preclearance provision. And so any changes they made, So if they redrew a district boundary, they had to get that okayed first by the U.S. Department of Justice. Well, the Shelby County commissioners didn't want to be bothered with that. So they kept annexing land and kept annexing land, particularly around Calera City. And as they kept annexing, they kept redrawing the district boundaries that then made the one lone Black councilman They redrew his boundaries in a way that moved him out of his district and into a new district. And that district is where over 70% of his constituents voted against Barack Obama. So when that election happened, he was voted out of office. So there was a lawsuit because Shelby County had violated the Voting Rights Act. This was clear. I mean, this was obvious. This was blatant. It goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in a decision that is stunning in its incredible ability to not look at evidence, in a 5-4 decision with John Roberts pinning the decision, he argued several things. That the Voting Rights Act was really no longer necessary because the racism that had been in America in the 1960s that called for the Voting Rights Act, eh, it was no longer there. I mean, he's like, look, we have Black elected officials, we have Hispanic elected officials. So that kind of virulent racism just isn't there. So, you know, I'm not sure why we need a Voting Rights Act. He also argued that it unfairly picked on the South. Well, the South, my mother used to say, and I'm going to do do it this way. When I was little, and I just keep hitting on my brother, hitting on my big brother, hitting him, hitting him. And then finally, he would just whack me, right? And I go running to my mother, go, oh, he hit me. He's picking on me. And she'd say, what are you doing to make yourself so pickable? (laughs) You can tell my mother's Southern, right? Yes, yes. And so it wasn't like we were looking at the innocence here. We are looking at states not only in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that systematically blocked African Americans from the voting booths, but what we also saw in the Reauthorization Act of 2006, the VRA Reauthorization Act, the U.S. Department of Justice laid before Congress over 700 changes that it had stopped between 1982 and then, over 700. 
because they were racially discriminatory. So for the U.S. Supreme Court to look at over 700 changes blocked since 1982 and to say there's no need for this law is to ignore the evidence. So the U.S. Supreme Court then gutted what's called Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 4 is where the conditions for being put under preclearance are laid out. And gutted Section 4. Now, Clarence Thomas, bless his heart, (laughs) in his separate opinion, not only wanted Section 4 gutted, he wanted Section 5 gutted. Section five then are what the states have to do that are under preclearance. He thought all of that had to go. So with the Voting Rights Act no longer operable, really, the preclearance provision was the thing that stopped the mess from happening. What it did then was have, you had to now rely upon section two of the Voting Rights Act that says, thou shall not have, it's like a commandment, thou <laughs> shall not have <laughs> racial discrimination <laughs> in, in your voting, right? In your voting laws. And so organizations like the Legal Defense Fund and like the League of Women Voters and the ACLU have had to use Section 2. But that means that the racially discriminatory law, voting law, is now operable. Preclearance stopped it before there could be an election, before it could take hold, before you could have a disfranchised electorate that had no voice. You would get taxation without representation and you would get people put in power who were put in power based on a disfranchised electorate. So their whole thing was, okay, how do I keep this going by creating more rules to disfranchise? Because that's how they got access to power. Coming up after the break, we hear more from Professor Carol Anderson about what voter suppression looks like in the 21st century. And Jessica Hoosman explains why states may not be prepared to handle this new wave of mail-in voting. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else, and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, you know, I mean, when we we think of disfranchisement, you know, maybe we think of Sheriff Clark in Selma blocking people from literally voting. But I mean, the, the example you use with Shelby V. Holder, disfranchisement may look like drawing districts in such a way that the black vote is diluted. Absolutely. And so it doesn't necessarily look like a lack of access to registration, although that I'm sure is still. What are some other forms that disfranchisement takes today that may not be as obvious as people like John Lewis taking police batons to the back of the head? I call it um, James Crow Esquire (laughs) or or Jim Crow 2.0. It's more subtle. It's more bureaucratic. Let's take some, uh, some key examples. 
So I'm going to do a quick history lesson too. When Mississippi pulled up its plan for 1890 to disfranchise the black population, it said what it was doing was protecting the integrity of the ballot box from voter fraud. And that was its rationale for all of these different policies, conditions that you needed to make, to get to or to achieve in order to be able to vote. The same thing we're seeing right now. Under the lie, and I, I do mean that, I don't mean falsehood, I don't mean mistaken, I mean it is a lie, a USDA grade A prime beef lie about voter fraud. Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, found that he counted the votes in the U.S. from 2000 to 2014. So over a 15-year period, there were 1 billion votes. There were 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud out of 1 billion votes. That's not massive. That's not rampant. But that becomes foundational for then the various policies like voter ID. So voter ID sounds reasonable. It has a middle-class norm to it. I know you've heard it. I've heard it. Everybody's got an ID. How hard is it to get an ID? You have to have an ID to check out a book from the library. You know, Trump even said, you got to have an ID to, to buy your groceries. <laughs> <laughs> right? This is a man who's never bought groceries. <laughs> but the sense is, is that you get a democracy imperiled because you've got all this massive rampant voter fraud with people trying to steal the election. And so the response sounds reasonable. All you have to do is show an ID, except the way that the law is written. So what they did in North Carolina was the Republicans, and this is a Republican-driven thing. Let's be real clear here. The Republicans got data on race by who has what types of IDs. They identify the IDs that whites have the most, and they identify the IDs that African-Americans did not have, that disproportionately did not have. And they made the IDs that whites had to be the access to the ballot box. Well, and I know you are quite familiar with our Secretary of State, John Merrill, and his defense is often, well, Black voter registration has never been higher in Alabama than it has been in the last five years. He uses that to justify a lot of these laws, including voter ID laws. How would you respond to statements like that? Well, you know, I'm in Georgia. We hear the same stuff, right? Right. And I've got to say it is in spite of and not because of. So what we have is an enormous, incredible ground game of civil society registering folks to vote, mobilizing folks, getting them to the polls, polls that have been shut down after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, that have created incredible distances from the voter to where they can cast their ballot. All of that work is not being done by the state. It is being done by organizations that believe in democracy and that American citizens have the right to vote. John Merrill calls it a privilege. He treats the vote as a privilege. It is a right. He treats it as a privilege because it's like you've got to jump over all of these obstacles. And once you have 
jumped over this obstacle, run across this one, leaped over this one, burrowed under that one, then you too may get the right to vote. Voting isn't a privilege. And when you have secretaries of state who treat it that way, and then look up and see all of these folks registering to vote, they're like, okay. So the analogy I use is when somebody shoots at you and you don't die, it doesn't mean they didn't try to kill you. It just means you didn't die. But they don't get credit for not killing you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we are heading towards a significant election in November, (laughs) assuming that uh, it doesn't get moved. (laughs) Oh, it won't. (laughs) 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 What is it that most concerns you about this election cycle? And then looking forward, I mean, obviously the passage of the Voter Rights Advancement Act, but, you know, what else needs to be done to ensure one person, one vote? One of the things we need to do, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, we have had over 150,000 die, we've had over 4 million cases, and we know that this thing is lethal, it is dangerous, and yet we seem to be having these horrific debates that should not be even debatable about how do you protect your right to vote and your right to health. We have politicians who are making people choose. And it feels to me very Jim Crow. You vote, you risk dying. It reminds me of Maceo Smith here in Georgia in 1946, where there was a sign over the door saying the first Negro that votes will be the last thing he ever does. And Maceo Snipes voted, and he was eventually greeted with a firing squad on his front porch. That's what we're doing when we're sending people, when we're not providing absentee ballots so that people can vote safely from home. And we're not getting the kind of funding that the county election officials need and and the state election officials need to process all of the requests for absentee ballots. And so then we're driving people to stand in these lines in the middle of a pandemic. I call it being put before a COVID-19 firing squad, you know, and you're just praying that one of those bullets doesn't hit you so that you can exercise your right to vote. So I worry about that. I worry about the deliberate strangling of the right to vote in the middle of a pandemic. Where my hope is, people are powerful. Wow, people standing in line for five hours here in Georgia to vote going, I will vote. I didn't get my absentee ballot, but I'm not turning around. You know, it's kind of like the song on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. It's people banging on the doors in Louisville, Kentucky to vote. It's people after the U.S. Supreme Court makes a decision on April 6th that if your absentee ballot isn't postmarked by the 7th, April 7th, it won't count. But tens of thousands of people had not received their absentee ballot yet. And so they stood in line in Wisconsin to vote. I think there's a determination like I haven't seen before of people knowing how important this election is and demanding to vote. And and I've heard folks say, I'm willing to crawl through broken glass. Okay, RL. So now we know a little bit more about how the civil rights movement never really ended. And you can learn more about that from Carol Anderson's book, One Person, No Vote. But what does that mean for 2020? 
You know, people are stuck at home right now because of the pandemic. They're reasonably worried for their lives. There are states in the South where it's going to be much harder for people to vote. There are states like Washington State that have been prepared for mail-in voting for, for decades. And then there are states like Alabama that only recently decided that they were going to allow no-excuse absentee voting. And even still, you have to have a voter ID and, you know, a signed <laughs> affidavit by a notary or, or two witnesses. So what does that look like, you know, flashing forward? three months from now, why should people be keyed in on this right now? And for that, I spoke with ProPublica's Jessica Huseman to learn a little bit more about how our votes will be counted this year. Okay, Jessica Huseman, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks so much for having me. It seems like of all the things that we were not prepared for during a pandemic, elections and voting during coronavirus may be the most urgent and pressing. (laughs) I think that that is an accurate assessment, yes. We've got 50 different states who I I understand vote 50 different ways. You recently wrote about the EAC, which oversees all of that. And they've been kind of leaderless, not just this year, but since they came into existence in in 2000. Can you tell us what the EAC is and, and why this matters? Yeah. So the Election Assistance Commission is the only federal agency that has any real authority at all over the way that local jurisdictions manage their election. So the only thing keeping American elections from being like the Wild West is this really tiny federal agency. And they don't have a ton of formal authority over states, although they do certify voting machines and states can really only use federal funding for machines that are certified. So that kind of gives them default quite a bit of power. But there is inherently a lot of power in being the only clearinghouse for information and best practices sort of group of elections officials that are all doing their own thing. And so this agency, especially for smaller counties, is heavily relied on for good information about elections best practices. And the agency just really hasn't been living up to its mission since the day that it was founded. So it was founded in 2002 after the calamitous 2000 election as part of the Help America Vote Act. And its intention was to sort of help states navigate future crises. We find ourselves in one right now. And (laughs) the agency is, you know, floundering a bit. I mean, they're, they're understaffed, they're sort of starved for funds and attention by Congress, and just really can't perform any of the duties that that it was meant to perform under the Help America Vote Act. And this is an organization that would seem to be pretty easy for the average person just kind of one, never hear of, and two, if they have heard of, you know, just kind of be out of mind for any time other than a moment like this, where all of a sudden people who are used to going and voting at their community center, elementary school, or wherever they vote in person are suddenly having real apprehensions about doing that. And starting in March, a lot of people have tried to kind of retrofit absentee voting, vote by mail, and, and that wasn't in place I mean, particularly where I live in Alabama, that wasn't something that people could normally do without, you know, an excuse. There are states like Washington where voting by mail is the norm, but now states are kind of racing to create that infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. And so having a federal clearinghouse for information is especially important at a time like this, because we do, as you mentioned, have a few states that do vote by mail universally. And this is just how they conduct their elections. There are five states like this. And taking the best practices from those states and 
digesting them and making them into how-to guides for other states is a really, really important task right now. Because if you think about a state like Washington, that has been doing vote by mail for more than a decade. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on best practices and workflow and the supply chain to make all of this happen. States can't digest all of those thousands of pages of information. Like it's very difficult for one state that's never done vote by mail before to completely rehaul their system and in order to do that, read thousands of pages of documents that pertain entirely to another state. Like, it's just not a realistic thing to ask states to do. But if you're a federal agency whose job is to be a clearinghouse for this information, then it seems like you should take your research staff and have them take those thousands of pages of documents and boil them down to the nuts and bolts. And what we saw this time around is that the EAC is so understaffed and underfunded that they couldn't even manage that. So the task fell to an entirely different federal agency that's not necessarily set up to do this sort of thing, along with several agencies that are not even really part of the administration. And so it was just sort of like a ad hoc effort to get this information out rather than relying on the federal agency that's supposed to do it. I would think that, you know, the majority of our listeners, I know I can speak for myself, you know, I want to be able to vote safely. I want to be able to vote securely. And I also want to be able to trust that the elections are going to be legitimate. It feels like we're hearing allegations of voter fraud or voter suppression from both the right and the left, the right alleging that voting by mail is is rife with fraud and the left alleging that, you know, the, the process of voting by mail in a state like Alabama, for example, where you have to have a, a notarized affidavit can be tantamount to to voter suppression. What would you say about both of those allegations? So I think that, you know, both can be true at the same time, even if they're not as true as the parties would like you to believe. So I think that in the five states that do vote by mail universally all the time, there is almost no fraud at all because they have perfected the system. The ballots can be tracked. You know where they are at all times. People are used to vote by mail. And so they play by the rules. What I can, am concerned about and what I don't think is that off base is that if states choose to go vote by mail before they're prepared to, then the lack of preparedness can lead to things like disenfranchisement and voter fraud. And the reason I say that is because the states that do this really well, right, they have a system that's much like an Amazon package. So you know when you're registration has been processed. You know when they've mailed the ballot out to you. You know where that ballot is in the truck and you know where it is every step of the way. You know when it's been counted. You know if there's a problem. Like it's it's very secure. They've got electronic signature verification, all of these fancy bells and whistles. It's almost impossible to implement all of that security and all of those safeguards in a couple of months, right? Like it took Washington a decade, it took Utah 10 years, it took Hawaii six years. So like we're talking about a years long process that states are trying to compact into a really small amount of time. And if you skip steps, then I think that voting does become less secure. And, and I've been impressed with states who are being realistic about their abilities in this moment. You know, you haven't really seen a state rocket forward from no vote by mail to a ton of vote by mail. It is a mixed bag in every state, depending on what they're prepared for. On the flip side, there's 
calls of suppression. And I think that these, you know, even if they originate from a really good, well-intentioned place, can have the same effect you know, I'm going to use Louisville, Kentucky as a example here. You saw hundreds of people on Twitter screaming because in Louisville, they had one polling location and there are 600,000 registered voters in Louisville. And so you saw everyone from Ari Berman, who is a progressive journalist who has lots of followers on Twitter, to Ilhan Omar, to NBA players, like talking about how everyone in Louisville was going to be disenfranchised because there were 600,000 people assigned to a single polling location. You know, those calls like left out really important factual information. So first of all, of the 600,000 people assigned to that voting location, 150,000 of them had already voted by mail. So they weren't showing up anyway. Second, it's a primary, right? And so there's not going to be six hundred thousand people showing up to this polling location like we're talking about maybe 40 percent turnout and so if you take 40 percent of six hundred thousand and then you subtract 150,000 from that like we're talking about a hundred hundred twenty thousand voters we're not talking about six hundred twenty thousand or six hundred thousand voters like that's a lot of people for one polling location but it was in a convention center and they had it spread out. There were no lines all day. It was very quick. And now the Democratic Party is saying the place that we should look for as an example of how to conduct an election in a pandemic is Kentucky. And so <laughs> like, you know, like it's, but if you think about the impact of like people calling suppression in that moment, right? Like if you think about like, well, LeBron James told me that I was going to wait four hours if I showed up to vote in, in Louisville. Like, there are probably a lot of people who didn't show up to vote because they were concerned about the lines and 600,000 people being assigned to one polling location. Now, in the current moment, you're talking about you know some locations that are being closed because of the pandemic. Over the last decade, since Shelby V. Holder, I mean, haven't we also seen rural voting locations and voting locations in heavily minority communities shut down for other reasons? I mean, is that is that suppressive yes. or is that okay? And, and that's definitely suppressive. I mean, I think that we kind of need to remove this year from the fact checks that we might do every time another polling location closes. The questions that I ask myself when a polling location closes now are very different than the questions I asked myself three months ago. And, and I'm sure will be very different than the questions I asked myself a year from now when we're past this pandemic. This is just a very unique moment in time. I do think that there are probably lawmakers who are trying to take advantage of the chaos around this time to close polling locations that don't necessarily need to be closed and blaming it on resource issues. And so journalists and activists in their community should still interrogate the reasons why polling locations are closing for a factual basis that relates back to the pandemic. Other things that we've seen during this cycle, but also in previous years, is issues with the voting machines themselves. And you mentioned that the EAC has not updated guidelines for voting machines since 2005. And so, you know, that's before the common internet age. How reliable are some of these machines? Uh, some of them aren't reliable at all. I mean, like, it is stunning to me. Like, we're still using touchscreen machines that were produced before the first iPhone. and they frequently don't 
have paper backups. These are more and more rare, but up to a year ago, the state of Georgia was using completely paperless machines. Louisiana was using completely paperless machines as late as like this year before they replaced them. So I think, you know, some of these machines are quite bad and small rural counties tend to use these a lot more than larger counties because there's this thing that people don't really take into consideration when they advocate for paper ballots, which is that you have to have somewhere to put all that paper. And so there are federal requirements for how long ballots must be stored after they're cast in case someone can test the election. And if you don't have paper ballots, then you don't have to worry about that problem because the law offers a loophole for whether or not you vote on paper. If you do vote on paper, then you have to store it. And so one of the reasons that small rural, especially counties, are not adopting paper ballots or, you know, machines that produce a paper backup is because they literally don't have any space to store these ballots. Like paper takes up a lot more space than I think people realize. And, you know, if you're a small county that's got one municipal office and no warehouse and you don't have anywhere to securely store thousands and thousands and thousands of paper ballots for 21 months, then that's a huge expense that I don't think people really consider. They think, okay, well, we need to replace our voting machines anyway. Why don't you replace them with these ones with paper backups? Well, if they do that, then that's additional expenditure for secure temperature controlled facilities to make sure that these ballots can be stored appropriately and securely without being tampered with. And that's a huge cost in itself. So I think that, you know, the lack of resources in small communities, especially in the rural South, has led to quite a bit of bad machines. And, and I think that people think that paper is a panacea for all of those problems, but there, it comes with some real storage and staffing and supply chain concerns. Well, and another panacea that we've seen offered up by, by people like Andrew Yang, for example, is, is moving everything online. And you know, I, I saw recently that you pointed out all of the potential flaws in that system. I mean, it sounds like having a, a paper backup certainly wouldn't be the case if we did it online. Right. You know, I think online voting is such a bad idea. I like, but people who, you know, there there's sort of a double layer of problem here. Like I think that people who really want internet voting don't understand how voting works or they don't understand how the internet works or both. So, you know, security is a huge reason that this won't work. I mean, there's really just not a secure enough platform that we would be comfortable using for voting. One thing that people love to say to me is like, well, if I can bank online and I can trade stocks online, then why can't I vote online? Like if it's secure enough for banking, then it should be secure enough for voting. And we actually accept quite a lot of insecurity so that we have the convenience of online banking. Like if you have shopped online, your debit card information has almost certainly been stolen and someone has spent your money in a way that you didn't intend for them to. And the reason that that's fine is because the banks are well-resourced enough to just reimburse you that money and then pursue it later, right? But if somebody comes and screws with your vote, there's no way to say, oh, well, you voted this way and you voted this way. So we're just going to restore the votes because we have a secret ballot. So there's not a way to sort of like make up for problems at the back end like you can with banking or like you can with 
you know, online shopping. It's just very, it's two very different things. And then I also think, you know, that that online voting would present a lot of problems in terms of access to resources. Like if we want to talk about exacerbating social inequalities, I think moving to online voting would have a hugely suppressive effect because we're talking about, you know, systems that you probably have to log on to securely. That's not going to be light on internet connectivity power um, and small rural communities with lack of broadband access. Like, I don't know how they're going to vote online. So for example, like I own property in rural East Texas and I have satellite internet. It's terrible. Like I don't, like I don't, I wouldn't feel confident voting on my satellite internet. And then, you know, if you don't have a computer at home and all you're working on is your phone and the county's online voting system isn't mobile friendly, which is obviously going to be the case. Like, you know, it just, it, it's just not a great idea um, for lots of reasons. Another theme stemming, I guess, from at least the 2016 election is the uh, possibilities of either foreign or even domestic interference in some of our elections. Have we taken the steps we needed to take since 2016 to prevent that? You know, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think there have been some really bright spots in preventing foreign interference. And I think chief among them has been that the states have a much, much better relationship with the Department of Homeland Security than they used to. So a piece of voting history that most people don't know anything about is that in the very, very last days of the Obama administration, elections were declared critical infrastructure. And critical infrastructure is a federal designation for important industries in the United States that if they were to stop functioning would be hugely problematic. So for example, the energy sector is critical infrastructure. The telecommunications sector is critical infrastructure. Banking is critical infrastructure. And you could see like if any one of those things failed, democracy wouldn't be far behind. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the, the critical infrastructure designation allows the federal government to respond as the federal government if a critical infrastructure is screwed with. And so we declared elections critical infrastructure so that in the event of outright foreign interference, the federal government could respond in kind. And so that happened at the very, very end of 2016. And as part of that, DHS took a more formal role in not necessarily overseeing local elections, but in assisting them. And so what we've seen in the last couple of years is that DHS has a much more streamlined relationship with local elections officials. They do much more cybersecurity training. They do much more testing. They do security drills all the time with local governments. So I think that since 2016, it's a very different landscape in terms of local election administrators' awareness of online security and phishing attempts and all of the things that we saw in 2016. So I think a lot of the progress that we've made, we won't necessarily see because there's so many other things that are more immediate that we have to deal with. But I do think that we're substantially more prepared than we were in 2016. What are some steps that our listeners can take to make sure that, you know, they're registered to vote, that they haven't been kicked off the voter rolls, and that they're able to vote securely, whether it's by mail or, or in person? So I think first, the thing to do to make sure that you can vote is to make a plan to vote and to be really systematic about it. So, you know, 
the election is now for three months. So three months gives you plenty of time, even in the current conditions, to really make sure that your registration is up to date, that you know where your polling location is, and that you know where to go to find out where your polling location is. And because given the environment, your polling location might change. So a better thing to do than finding your polling location and forgetting about the tool that you use to get there is to just locate the tool and create a Word document on your computer that has the links for checking your registration to make sure that your registration is up to date. The precinct finder tool that your county likely has or a number for your county where you can call and ask where your polling location is. And then I would also go ahead and research and make sure that depending on how you vote, you can make sure that your ballot was adequately cast. So if you're voting by mail, you should ask your county what you need to do to make sure that your ballot counted and follow those steps. If you are voting in person and you cast a ballot on a machine, you can assume that it went through fine. If you're forced to cast a provisional ballot because, you know, they don't find you on the rolls or whatever, then you should ask how you can make sure that that ballot is eventually counted. You know, and I think that one of the biggest things that people can do if they're concerned about suppression and they're concerned about polling locations closing is to go volunteer to be a poll worker. If younger people who are less susceptible to the virus and more tech savvy volunteer as poll workers, we'll actually see a lot more polling locations open and a lot more efficiency in voting. And then long term, what are some best practices that citizens should be pushing their states to adopt for future elections? You know, I think that one of the things that they can push to do is to join ERIC. It is a, that's an acronym. It's like electronic registry. I don't know. Anyway, it stands for something, but it is a tool that allows states to check their voter rolls against other voter rolls. And I know that what I'm describing sounds a lot like Chris Kobach's cross check, which is sort of like through the voter rolls at each other to see if there were more than one person by the same name across state lines. And it wasn't very accurate, but this is a nonprofit group that pulls your entire voter roll and also another state database. So they'll link up your voter roll with your DMV record, for example. And so when they go to other states to match their rolls and make sure that the voter roll is clean and you're not registered to vote in both Texas and New York or something, they're matching on more than just your first and last name and your birthday. They're also matching on your social security number and your email address. And so it's a really wonderful, easy tool for states to use to make sure their voter roll is clean. And having a clean voter roll is important for a lot of reasons, but chiefly because it helps states know where voters are so that they know how to appropriately assign resources. And it also makes the debate over whether or not there should be a polling location here or there or wherever a lot more transparent. Because if both the state and the advocates have good information about where voters are, both can advocate for them more appropriately. If you're in a state where the voter roll is so messy that you really don't know where voters are, it's very difficult for the state to know where to put polling locations. And it's also very difficult for advocates to know if the state is doing a good job. And so I think that having a clean voter roll is step one in lots of advocacy, and that's the easiest way to get there. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jessica. Yeah, no problem. uh, This was really fun. Thanks for your work. So thank you to Jessica and Carol for their time. And there's a lot of ground we didn't cover today. Like there are hundreds of thousands of formerly incarcerated men and women out there who still can't vote in a lot of states. And even still, it's going to be tough for people to vote. So the most important takeaway from today is register to vote if you haven't already. 
vote early if you can, and make a plan to make sure that your vote counts on election day. But in the next few weeks, RL, we're going to talk a little bit more about why does this matter? What are people actually voting for? So thank you again to Carol Anderson and Jessica Hoosman. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammondry. And me, RL Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. Subscribe to The Reckon Interview wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our new website, Reckon South. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletters. And until next week, thanks for reckoning with us.